we're going to be in Joshua 3. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, um, I hate using my computer, uh, but I left my sermon notebook here this week, and I did this message while I was in Michigan. So here I am on my computer. So um, I hate it, but this is what we got today. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer the question. We're going to talk about the question, uh, why am I here? Why am I here? Um, I know this is very cliche to ask this, um, but I feel like with where we are um, going or where we're on the way to, I think this question really needs to be settled in a lot of us. And um, so why am I here? I'm going to start with um, some stuff I've been writing. I'm going to use a couple of big words, but I'll explain what they are. And the reason is, is I didn't have any other way of saying it except to use a couple of big words. So um, I will explain it, though. Um, so it was so good to see some of you guys we haven't seen in a while and uh, new faces and obviously I haven't got I've shook hands with y'all but I would like to meet you um, in person and get your names and stuff so so glad you guys are here so glad that Ryan's here fourth time right fourth time four times a charm you know um, just kidding we got a new friend Evan right Evan so glad you're here another Evan is not new but still good to have you <laughs> Um, no, but I'm so glad everybody is here. So, uh, okay, let me read some stuff, and then we'll, we'll get into... Um, uh, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Happy birthday, Emily. <laughs> Emily turned 30 this week, Friday. So I want, am I supposed to tell people you turned 30? Okay, some people don't like, you know. I turned 31. Gotcha, gotcha by one year. No. Uh, <laughs> Emily acts way older than me, so, you know, <laughs> surprise. But um, anyway, so are you good, Emily? It, okay, good, good. She had a headache earlier, so no, we'll pray for it at the end. So, um, Carolina won yesterday. Clemson came back and won yesterday. So, such a good day. Uh, okay, here we go. The question I want you to leave with today is, why am I here? Not just here at this church, though. You know, that's that could be included, but that's that's not exactly what we're talking about today. But it's here as in why you were born, why you exist. And I know this is a very churchy thing to ask, and many have attempted to leverage the weight of this question to push people into motivation for certain movements. However, our, Mer our American Western culture, though I love where we live and the freedoms that we have, absolutely, is kind of right now at a crossroad. That crossroad is the point where our grand ideas of the individual meet a society that has taken the seed of individuality and grown it into something fully matured. I'm going to explain this. I know I said big words, but just hold on. What has grown from the original seed of our society is something that we did not expect. Here's what I mean. Uh, in, the 19, in the 18th century, uh, there was this thing called the Enlightenment period. I talk about it a lot. Um, the Enlightenment period was essentially where we, for, for in very simple terms, we took God, shoved him into outer space, and said, we can run the world like we think we can run the world, but we'll call you if we need you, God, thanks. And so you have Thomas Jefferson, and most of you know this, but just to review, Thomas Jefferson comes out with what was known as the Jefferson Bible, and he goes through and essentially edits out every bit of uh, all the miracles, any prophetic words, the resurrection, um, healings, all that stuff, so that we're just left with a book of good morals. Okay, So that really gives you a good insight into the Enlightenment period. But the Enlightenment period, the idea of it, was to really encourage everyone to follow their own reason, okay? 
their own reasoning. The idea of the Enlightenment period was every single individual should have the tools and the encouragement needed to chase their own reasoning. Okay? The idea behind this was that everyone would be free to be themselves with their own ideas about the world around them. Which sounds good, right? What we got instead that we didn't expect was a society of people who long for, really, deep down and within, who long for institutional community and connection, but on the surface hold on to their popular notions of their own reason. So let me explain this. The word institution, sorry, that was a loud clap. The word institution um, essentially just means any, anything that brings people together, okay? So your school is an inst- government's an institution, church is an institution, um, your family is an institution, anything that holds people together. When I say the word institution, most of us get a kind of a bad taste in our mouth. You know what I mean? If I just said, what do you think about just the, when I say the word institution, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? For the most of us, it's not good. It's negative, right? Because we've been trained that the pinnacle of life is autonomy. It's, it's me and me alone. It's my truth. It's how I see things. It's how I run things. It's how I think it should be. And if I have to cut anybody else down along the way, so be it. But the problem is, is on the inside, in our subconscious even, we know it's wrong. We know on a subconscious level that we're made for community. So we have a problem. Because on the surface, we have to say that we love our own truth because that's what is in our society. You do you. You be you. You know what I mean? How do you identify however you think you should identify? I'm not, I mean, trying to get into a big can of worms, but like, you know what I'm saying? It's just like the society we have. Instead of what we really long for, which is what is true about us. What do we see as true? How do we see the world? How do we operate in the kingdom? You know what I mean? And so out of this comes things like this. I can do church wherever I am. You know what I mean? I am the church. No, we. We are the church. You are a part of the church, but you are not the church. You know what I'm saying? We are the church. I, I can do, I can do, you know, I can, you know, jump around wherever I want. I want to jump around that has the music I like and the teaching I like and the service time I like and the length that I like and the programs that I like. You know, you see what I'm saying? And at no point do we ever say, man, where's the, where's the place the, the presence of God is just is so present in his church? In his own church. Let's go find where Jesus is most present in his own church. No, we say, what church offers me what I think I like the best? And, and so, so now in the South, we have this culture where people just hop around, hop around, don't like it, get offended, hop around, hop around, don't like the music, hop around. You know what I'm saying? Because everybody's searching for what they really want. But the reason they can't get settled anywhere is because they know subconsciously they don't want what they think they want. They want the kingdom. They want the presence of God, but on the surface, they don't know that they want the presence of God in the kingdom. 
So when you sit down with people, and this happens to me all the time, it happens this week, you sit down with people who think like that and you begin to explain to them another way, it's like a light turns on. But they'll never commit to it. You know what I mean? Let me give you a, just a real practical example. Um, we have hundreds, and that's not an exaggeration, of people in Colombia that attend different churches that once they leave their church on a Sunday, they'll go home and on Monday, we get this message all the time, they'll send me a message and say, but I really get fed from listening to y'all's messages. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? To which I say, you know, we live, we were right down the street from you, right? You know what I'm saying? But, but it's because I, 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 the deepest parts of me longs for what that's saying. The deepest parts of me longs for that frequency, but the surface part of me knows that can't be what I really want. So there's this crossroads that we're at. In other words, we've built an entire generation on the self, but the longing of the heart is together. We've siloed in our beliefs inspired by things like social media and network news and made enemies of those whose reason in inevitably differs from ours, and for the church, we've created a system that attempts to do what it can't do, which is entertain and affirm every single individual's reason. That we've, we've built churches to affirm every single person's individual reasoning, which cannot happen. And so when we do that, we'll start shying away from anything that starts to cross the lines of individual reason. Like abortion. Because if I got people in my church that believe in abortion and I got people in my church that don't believe in abortion, the best way for me to keep all of them in the church is if we just never talk about it. You know what I'm saying? Right? And so, so we'll stay in our siloed individual things, and that's called consumerism. It's literally what it's called. We, the idea of consumers is amazing for the economy, terrible for church. You know what I mean? If you're running a business, be, a be as consumer as you possibly can. But if you're running a church, that's not how it works. You know what I'm saying? We're not here to consume something. I said a few weeks ago, we're here to be consumed by someone. You know what I'm saying? And so that's what it is. Reason is simply how someone sees or perceives the world. That's all that means. So all of us have our own reason. We have our own way of processing everything we see and do. Okay? And while reason is not a bad thing, autonomous reasoning is deadly. Reason is a great thing. How you perceive, how you see, whatever. That's a great thing. When we start to silo in, this is how I think. And in other words, everybody else that doesn't think like me is wrong. In other words, everybody that doesn't think like me is my enemy. You know what I mean? So let me give you an example of this. If I gave everybody in the room $100,000, which is not happening. Um, if you got $100,000, you'd like to give me though. No. But um, if I gave everybody in the room $100,000, every one of you would do something different with that $100,000. Okay? So for some of you, you might pay off like student loan debt, right? Um, for some of you, you might go buy a horse. Some of you might go buy a big house. Brandon would go buy a boat. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I don't know what you would buy, Brandon. Um, <laughs> Brandon would go by a winning season. No, no, I'm just joking, just joking, just joking, just joking. Um, <laughs> that was a Gamecock staff. Um, 
They have tried to do that. It hasn't worked so far. Rip, rip, rest in peace, Will Muschamp. Um, a lot of inside jokes. So um, anyway, every one of you would do something different that 100000 So if I ask you, even on the, the, the most basic level, let's say you went and bought a house with $100,000. Okay, every one of you still has a reason why you spent the money the way you spent it, even if it's just, I just want a house. Okay, but for those that paid off their student loan debt, you would have a reason. I get crushed by the idea of paying the student loan debt off every single month, so I paid it off. But every one of you have a certain reason that you process things through that would cause you to take the same thing and utilize it 40 different ways. You know what I'm saying? So, so reason is not bad. What is bad is when we start to take the same purity of the kingdom and we start using it based on what I think at the expense of the community that at the same time we know deep down inside we really need. <clears throat> Autonomous reasoning is you having a view of the world based on you and you alone that is so settled within yourself that you attack and make enemy with another reason. However, this is the game that we've been born into. If reason is autonomous, meaning that everybody has their own way of seeing the world, then no one thinks the same, 100%. Therefore, theoretically, on some level, we are all really against each other. And this may be so deep under the surface of our interior world that we never even notice it. But if you stick around someone long enough or a group of people long enough, you'll see the difference, and that difference will cause a reaction to rise up on the inside of you. Why? Because it's simply different than your own reason. We see this in the church all the time. If you stick around the church long enough, you'll find something you disagree with. If you stick around me long enough, you'll find something you disagree with. It's happened probably to all of you. Now, all of you probably know that I was right, but no, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Um, that was just playing on the reasoning thing, so that was just a joke. But, you know what I'm saying? But it's happened. The, the difference is, is when you can sit down with people and say, you and I don't think alike, but is there something I can learn from the way you think and something you can learn from the way I think that can cause the community to actually grow by our differences? But we innately know that that's wrong. We innately know that siloing is wrong because we long for family, we long for community. I mean, that's what the, right now the, the biggest movement in the church is community groups because everybody wants community. But the only way to have true community is for you to lay down the thing that has kept you from community, which is your way is the only and right way. Y'all good? You see me? Okay. We long for a church that believes in us. Yet this inner longing is always at war with our exterior reason. Therefore, we don't know who we are. Are we what we have formulated in our heads through things like social media or friends or news or the famous? Or are we those who really just want to belong? The answer right now is yes. We are both what we have formulated from the world around us and those who really just want to belong. We're both. But how can we ever belong if we're siloed in our individual reasoning? Or how can we ever be our true selves, our true individual reasoning, if we just simply belong? So the church has answered this by creating community around what it believes is the most common reasoning of its people. In other words, 
get people to think we affirm their reasoning by creating small groups around their different interests. Or preach sermons on topics that throughout the course of a year hit the major widespread influencers of the American reason, such as how to handle money, how to be rich, how to have a good marriage, how to find a good spouse, right? How to pay off debt, how to be a good leader. If I didn't have a dime for that one, you know what I'm saying? We're going to learn how to be a good leader. We, re- we probably should learn what it means to follow Jesus first. <laughs> I've been gone a week. <clears throat> in the process of making the church in the image of its people, we have stripped the people of their very humanity, and in an effort to affirm their false, false humanity, stripped them of what it means to be human, which is to bear the image and likeness of God. Humanity was made in the image and likeness of God. That's what it means to be human. Therefore, our reasoning should be rooted in our image and likeness bearing of God. In other words, we have no true reasoning, but we have the Holy Spirit who is God's reasoning, which makes us who we are supposed to be, which is not autonomous from God, but hidden in God. This is what 1 Corinthians 2.16 says from Paul. He says this, that we've been given the mind of Christ. Christ has not affirmed our mind. Christ has replaced our mind with his own. I don't want to see how closely my views line up with God's views. I want to only know God's views and let mine die. God wants to partner with us, absolutely, but he does not want to compete with us. Our minds are not to be alongside of God as much as they are really designed to be within God. But if the church has turned her aim toward human reasoning, it also had to make a choice to turn away from the reasoning of God because you cannot have both. Is this too much? So y'all see y'all lying. Huh? In, in order for us to build a church made in the image and likeness of man, simultaneously you have to make the decision we don't want a church made in the image and likeness of God or you would never have to choose. The fact that we have to choose to either be a church for the unbeliever or for the believer is a witness to the fact that we're asking the wrong question as to who the church is. The church is neither for the unbeliever or the believer. The church is for God. And when we make the church about God, both the unbeliever and the believer can come in and find home because God is about both. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor Greek, or Jew nor Greek, slave or free. Now we've all been created into one humanity in Christ Jesus. There's neither, well, let me stop right there because I'm about to get in some trouble. I forgot I'm in the Bible Belt. So you know what I'm saying? So, so if, we, if we aim the church at God, this is what C.S. Lewis says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. And what we have done is aimed at earth and wondered why we have nothing. When instead we need to be aiming at heaven and receive by way of inheritance everything else. Here's the problem. That takes a long time. 
in a culture that all it has ever known is a church made in my image. You know, two weeks from now, we'll celebrate five years as a church, five years. And on the outside, you could look in and say, well, what has happened in five years? Well, I'm looking at a bunch of people who, when you got here, no matter where you got here along the way in those five years, you had some ideas about God that I would dare say have matured since then, right? And so you could look at it and, man, has this church grown? It has absolutely grown exponentially. I would argue more than any other church in this town because we haven't grown numerically. We've grown in what it means to be human, which is to bear the image and likeness of God. And I promise you, if we stick at that long enough, we'll start to see the earth thrown in. When I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself, right? And so this is, this is a, a major shift that we've taken, and I really wanted to take a minute today and point out that we have taken that shift. And the other reason I want to point it out is because if we're not careful, it's so easy for us to go home, pull up our social media, and start scrolling, and you get about two minutes into scrolling, and suddenly something on the inside of you has changed in two minutes. All the time. For example, you are exactly where you need to be in wherever the Lord has you right now. If that's not married yet, if it's not having kids yet, if it's not even having the job that you want yet, you're exactly where you need to be right now. But as soon as you turn this on, all you're told is you're not where you need to be right now. You should be further. You should have married that person you dated in high school. You, you know what I'm saying? There'll never be anybody else for me. I'm never going to have kids. I'm never going to have a job. And suddenly you'll start settling, right? And why will you start settling? Just because of what you saw on social media that, by the way, has been fixed to make sure you see the exact stuff that you need to see on the news, for example. Why is it that you turn on CNN and you get one story and you turn on Fox News and you get another story and turn on C? Do you know why? I mean, obviously, because they get paid by ad dollars. So let me give you an example. You know the My Pillow dude, Mike Lindell. All right, Lindell. First, number one, we got My Pillows as a gift one time, and they stink. They're the worst pillows we've ever had. So um, <laughs> they're so bad. Um, if you have a My Pillow and you love it, praise God. But um, but anyway, 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 that's not neither here nor there. Um, so if you turn on Fox News. You'll see. Let me. I'm gonna just. You'll see ads like um, uh, my pillow ads um, with the American flag and Donald Trump holding the Bible and you know all that stuff. And then you'll also see on uh, on there. I'm trying to think of some ones I've seen. Uh, Mike Huckabee, who's giving out a free guide to the Trump presidency. It's a whole book that you can get for free to teach your kids about Trump because they're not being taught in school. Okay. But then you turn on CNN, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm taking a stance on either anybody. Then you'll turn on CNN, and the most uh, ads that you'll see are things like um, get your 145th booster. Um, get, and again, I'm not taking a stance. I don't know what, I just I don't know what number we're on. But, um, you know, get your, get your booster. Vote for Stacey Abrams or whatever state you live in. Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones. And you know what I'm saying? They don't, have, they don't play the same ads, Right? Because if you turn on Fox News, they know Republicans are watching this. So all of our ad dollars are coming from conservative companies. Therefore, the narrative we have to push is an ultra-conservative narrative so that these conservative companies will keep giving us money. 
You go to CNN, it's the same, but the opposite. So we're never actually getting the news. We're really just getting biases confirmed on the inside of us so that people can use our biases to make more money. And that's the, right? that's the news. That's why you turn on Fox News and 10 minutes later, you'll be mad. You turn on CNN, 10 minutes later, you'll be mad. And you'll be mad about different things. You know what I'm saying? And so why am I saying, I'm not saying I'm against the news or social media. I'm kind of against the news. But um, turn on local news. Local news is about the most unbiased thing that we got right now, okay? Um, do what? Oh, yeah, BBC. Yeah, well, maybe. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the news anchors from WIS was a few rows ahead of me in my flight the other night. But anyway, and um, so we, uh, but that's, but social media, on the other hand, is completely different. Social media, you're getting your news not from people who are in the news, from Uncle Bobby, right, who is convinced, convinced that if Trump gets elected, the rapture, or if Biden gets elected for another time, the rapture is going to happen. You know what I'm saying? Or whatever. See, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother level. You know what I mean? That's like on the level of those emails that you used to get, send this to 12 people, or you will eat a cockroach in an hour or something. You know what I'm saying? And, and here goes grandma. You know, send them out. Um, <laughs> so so that's, that's such, okay, back, back to it. But, but, in, but, in, but instead of, listen, instead of like the church seeing all this insanity and saying, no, like we, we're going to be the place where people come in and find the truth. Instead it said, well, that's making a lot of money. You know what I'm saying? Boy, they sure are making some money. And so you have denominations that have been denominations for hundreds of years splitting over the issue of gay marriage. You know what I'm saying? Why? Because one side says if we side with them, we'll make a lot of money. The other side saying, no, if we side with them, we'll make a lot of money. Here's what we'll do. Let's split. You go to that money, we'll go to this money, and we'll all make money. I, I promise you. Let me tell you something. Because I'm, I'm, I, I know this, okay? These church splits that are happening are not because of doctrine. It is because of money. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? Because that is a doctrine that you could easily sit in a room and say, you believe this, we believe this. However, this is really not an issue that we should kill each other over. So let's just, let's just move on. We'll believe what we believe, you believe what you believe, but at least we believe in Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Or whatever. And, but, 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 some people might leave. Here's the other thing. If you, if you chase, if you, this, what am I doing? If you, if you chase that even deeper, I'll go to the towns in the Methodist church. God bless their souls. If you go, in, go into the towns, right, that are ultra-conservative towns, and go see which side of the aisle that church decided to go with. And then come to a city like Columbia, who's pretty liberal, and just go walk down the street, and you can see visibly what side of the aisle our Methodist churches decided to go with. Has nothing to do with doctrine. Most of them don't even know any kind of doctrine that revolves around that. You know what I'm saying? No idea. They have no idea what they believe. All they know is they're getting rich. So... Um, so anyway, and it's tempting, it's tempting because we could buy a huge building if we would just side with different people's biases. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I, if I could just affirm your biases, I could get you to give me a lot of money. And I, I know that sounds awful, but I mean, it's true. It's really, really is true. 
I've, I've cost our church thousands by teaching, teaching the truth. <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm saying? Okay. But if the church has turned her aim toward human reasoning, then we've turned away from God. This is what Joshua 24, 15 says. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, Israelites in the land, they've received the promise. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day who you will serve. Whether it will be the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in those living in the land. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. By turning away from the reasoning of God, we've unknowingly stripped our congregations of our very humanity. And by stripping us of our very humanity, we've left people grappling at anything that looks like life or hope or love, etc. And by this, gave us an inherited church where no one really cares about the Lord, no one really ever shows up, no one really is ever involved, no one ever remains, no one gives, etc. Why would they? They don't even know how it mean, what it means to be human. I told somebody this week, because we were talking about the doctrine of atonement, which we will not talk about today. We were talking about the doctrine of atonement, and I said, you know, we, we use this language that we need to get people saved in the South. That's what we use. That's the language we use. The problem is then we have to grapple with the fact that Jesus himself says salvation happened on the cross. So, so either we disagree with Jesus or we believe Jesus failed at what he said he was going to do. Neither are right. So instead of us teaching uh, you just need to get saved, instead what the gospel should be is let me show you what it means to be human. Not even let me show you what it means to be Christian. Let me show you what it means to be a human being. To be Christian is to follow Jesus. It's the, it's the religion that the, church, the people of Antioch made up when all these people started following Jesus. Okay, You and I were not called into a religion called Christianity. You and I were called into the reality of what it just means to be human. To be human means to be in the image and likeness of God. To be a Christian means you follow all the rules in order to be an image and likeness of God. That's not the same thing, okay? You are a human being, and the reason you follow Jesus is because Jesus is the human being that you and I are being constantly formed into the image of. In Genesis 1 and 2, when mankind is made in the image of God, they're made in the image of Jesus. Jesus is the image of God, right? The Spirit is the life of God, the Father is the Father, and the Son is, according to Hebrews 1, the expressed image of God. The Son is the image. So you and I are made in the image of Jesus. When Jesus is incarnate, he forms himself into the image that you and I have made in order to put it to death, in order that you and I might find what it means to be human again, which is to be made in his image. He became like us so that we could become what? Like him. And then you go a step further and realize you and I were made in the beginning like him. So really him becoming us is us becoming who we were in the very beginning, which is like him. And that's the gospel. And that's the grand irony that I talk about all the time, that while our churches are growing, the church is being poisoned. Nevertheless, God always reserves a remnant. And you and I are that remnant. We're not the only ones, but we're a part of it. And you are the one 
you, us, we are the ones that God has reserved for the purity of his bride. But why? Why you? Why me? And more importantly, why us? We must regain what it means to be human. Let's go into the question. Why am I here? I promise I'm going to read the text in a second. But to do that, we will have to retrain our appetites that have been trained in the ways of American consumerism to crave another kingdom. A kingdom that is not about the individual, but about the family. Why are you here? Is it to work hard, to make a lot of money, to buy a house, to have a career, to have influence, etc.? Because that's what we're told, is it not? Is it to make a name for yourself, to make sure you end up better than your dad or better than your friends? Is it to live a life that everybody applauds and envies? Or is it to reorder the entire created cosmos with the effervescence of your desire for your beloved? Is it to be happy? Not happy because you've created security, but happy because you've so surrendered your life to the one who is faithful that you can finally rest. Is it to be who you really are? You and I know without question who we are and why we are really here. We know the answer to this. Then the major question really is, why don't we live like we know why we're here? The question is not, do you know why you're here? The real question is, why have we rejected why we are here? Let me read Joshua 3. I'm not going to read all of it. Actually, I am. Okay, Joshua 3, verse 1, but it's not a big chapter, okay? I actually had planned to read Joshua 3 and 4, but I'm going to save you from that. Here we go. Early in the morning, Joshua rose and set out from Shittim with all the Israelites, and they came to the Jordan. They camped there before crossing over. At the end of the three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, being carried by the Levitical priest, and you shall set out from your place. Follow it so that you may know the way you should go. Listen, for you have not passed this way before. Whew. What is the ark of God? It's the place where God is enthroned. It's the presence of God. Okay. When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, set out from your place and follow it so that you may know where you should go. Why? Because you have not passed this way before. Yet, yet, there shall be a space between you and it, a distance of about 2,000 cubits. Do not come any nearer to it. It's the presence of God. Then Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. To the priest, Joshua said, take up the Ark of the Covenant pass out, or excuse me, and pass on in front of the people so that they took the Ark of the Covenant and went in front of the people. Verse 7, then the Lord said to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of Israel so that they may know I'll be with you as I was with Moses. You are the one who shall command the priest who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Joshua then said to the Israelites, Draw near and hear the words of the Lord your God. 10. Joshua said, By this you shall know that among you is the living God, the living God, who without fail 
will drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Verse 11. The ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is going to pass before you into the Jordan. So now select 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. When the sole of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan flowing from above shall be cut off and they shall stand in a single heap. Wait till you see this. 14. When the people set out from their tents to cross over the Jordan, the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant were in front of the people. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The Jordan overflows its banks throughout the time of harvest. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. You know, go back and listen if you want a little more detail on that. So when those who bore the Ark had come to the Jordan and the feet of the priest bearing the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water... The waters flowing from, listen to this, the waters flowing from above stood still, rising up in a single heap far off at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, while those flowing toward the Sea of Arabia, the Dead Sea, were entirely cut off. Then the people crossed over opposite Jericho, while all Israel were crossing over on dry ground, the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood on the dry ground in the middle of the Jordan until the entire nation finished crossing over the Jordan. <sighs> Is, okay, did you catch any names that sound really familiar there? Anybody? Adam, right? Which I've read this story a zillion times, and this never occurred to me until I read it. The Israelites are about to cross over the Jordan, okay? This sounds extremely familiar and on purpose very familiar to what? The crossing of the Red Sea, right? So what freed them from slavery is now going to be the thing that releases them into the promised land, okay? Baptism is, is what it is. When we do baptism in the church, all we're doing is a symbolic reenactment of the exodus, Okay, so yes, when you go into the water, you die. When you raise, you're alive in Christ. But the reason when you go into the water, you die and you raise to life in Christ is because of what happened at the Red Sea. You know what I mean? They passed through the waters. On the other side, their slave masters were dead and they were alive in God. Okay, so they're about to cross over the Jordan. Side note, I've always thought this is really funny, that the story of Joshua has two really main important names, and it's Joshua and it's Jordan, and my wife's name is Jordan and my name is Joshua, so I've always thought that was really cool. Um, and so uh, I wish Veda, Veda's name means ruler, so I, maybe somewhere in there it has something. But um, So I want you to picture what's happening, okay? The art, and I, I got this, I'm not going to use this right now, but I'm going to use it in a second, and you're going you're gonna to love this. The ark is the presence of God. The first time the Israelites go through the Red Sea, it's Moses with his staff that we're told in faith that parts the Red Sea. This time, it is not Joshua with a staff. It's the very presence of God that stops the waters up. So they're told, when you go into the Jordan and your feet rest 
in the Jordan, because of the presence of the Lord, the water will be stopped up. I will use that, actually. And here's where it said, it will be stopped up from Adam to the Dead Sea. All right. Water is life, especially for them. Okay? Without water, everything dies, including people. Water is life. Water was also in the Old Testament, which is why you see, especially in Genesis 1, um, the Spirit hovering over the chaotic waters. In, in the story of Jesus, why it's emphasized that Jesus calmed the storm and walked on the water. Um, all throughout Scripture, in the, in the ancient Near East you know, Hebrew mind, the waters were a chaotic force that were incapable of being tamed. You know? So that's why in a lot of the foreign religions, there were gods of the waters. It's because they saw the waters as a, almost, almost as what the gods used or leveraged to either give life or to destroy. You know, the earth in the, in the flood story is destroyed by what? Water, right? And so um, water is life. So there is a water source. And let me say this. There is a life source that is flowing from the city of Adam into the Dead Sea. Okay? The Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because there is so much salt in the sea that nothing can live in it. Let me say it like this. That which starts from Adam and flows down to the Dead Sea is so toxic that nothing can live in it. So let me read this one more time. So when those who bore the ark had come to the Jordan and the feet of the priest bearing the ark were dipped in the edge of the water, the waters flowing from above stood still, rising in a single heap far off at Adam, the city beside Zarethan, while those flowing toward the Sea of Arabia, the Dead Sea, were completely cut off. So, the presence of God steps in between that which is flowing with life from Adam into the Dead Sea, and when the presence steps in the middle of it, the life source from Adam to that which is dead is completely cut off. And when that happens, not only is there now no longer a sea that is full of that which kills, now the very waters that fed into the Dead Sea are being walked over by the people of Israel going into the land of their life. So from Adam flowed death, but when the presence steps in between Adam and death, suddenly the presence produces life. Is, huh? Okay. Water in the Old Testament represents the strongest force of creation. 
one that couldn't be contained. Water is a chaotic force that's incontrollable yet needed for life. And this is an incontrollable stream. Let me just finish this thought one more time so I make sure I get through my notes. When, yet when the ark stepped in the water, that which was incontrollable but gave a false sense of life. Okay? The Dead Sea. This is a false sense of life. Why? Because it was full of water, which normally means life. It was full of water. Yet the water within it was deadly. Do you, do you see some connections here? It was full of life. But if you stepped in the water as a fish or an animal that would live in the water and took one breath of that which looks like life, it kills you. Is it, all right, is it possible, is it possible that, and I, I hate, I'm not, I don't ever bash the church. I just bash the state of mind in the church, okay, in a lot of places, okay? I love the church, obviously, because I'm a pastor of a church. Is it possible that a lot of our buildings are full of what we think is life and it's actually killing people? And if we could ever allow the presence to take its place in the water, we might find that which gave people death actually starting to give them life again. But it, 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 all it takes is a kingdom of priests carrying such a measure of presence that it is powerful enough to step into the stream that flows from Adam and cut it off. I, 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 really, I need you to see this. It wasn't just the presence of God by itself. It was a group of priests carrying the presence of God that stopped the water up. It was not just God. It was the priest carrying a measure of presence that was so heavy that they are commanded, do not get within what, 2,000? Um, uh, what is it? 2,000 cubits? Yeah, okay. Let me, I just got to find it. I just got to find it. Um, cubits. Anyway, at a distance. Yeah, here it is, 2,000 cubits. Thank you. It's a presence that is so thick that he, they have to be commanded, do not get within 2,000 cubits of it. There are a group of priests. Now, here's what's ironic, okay? Here's what's ironic. If any of the people get that close to, and 2,000 cubits, I mean, that's a good distance, okay? If you get closer than 2,000 cubits, you would die from the weight of the presence. At the same time, there is a group of people that aren't just closer than that. They're carrying it and not dying. So he has to command those who are not in the priesthood to stay at a distance. But those who are in the priesthood are not only near it, they're carrying it. And not only carrying it, they're carrying it in such a way that when their foot steps in the water, it's as if God himself has stepped in the water. I, <clears throat> he cut it off. He cut the stream from Adam. He created dry ground for life and uh, to live and move, excuse me, where it was once incapable of moving because of the water. And to commemorate this, and this is in Joshua 4. Okay, that's huge, but what I really want to get to is this. And I'm not going to read it. I might read like two verses, but that's it. To commemorate that moment. Is everybody good with this before I erase it? Okay. To commemorate that moment, Joshua has the elders, the leaders of 12 tribes, to go into the water and collect 12 stones. One, two, three, four, five, 
six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. To go into the Jordan and get twelve stones out and set them on their side of the promised land. Why? Because when your children ask their parents in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel crossed over the Jordan here on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you crossed over as the Lord your God did at the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we crossed over. So that, listen, so that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Twelve stones, why? So when your children, who did not cross the water physically, but within you did cross the water, look at these stones and say, what are those stones? You can say, these stones are from the moment when the presence cut the stream off from Adam to dead. Here's what's awesome. Every one of these stones represent a tribe. So I was curious the other day, and I'm just going to do this real fast. I was curious the other day as to what each name of the tribes mean. And so I did a little, little search, and let me, just, let me just show you this, okay? I'm not going to write the names, but this is Reuben. Reuben means child of God, okay? Simeon means you have heard and therefore hear. Okay? That's Simeon. Levi means you are attached. I was going to have actual stones in here um, and do it this morning, but I didn't have time to go get them. Judah means you are for praise. Okay, that's Judah. Dan means God has judged you. Romans 8.33 would add not guilty. Okay, so God has judged you. Not guilty. Okay, so that's Dan. Nephtali means God sees your struggle. Remember, when your kids see this, remember. Um, Gad means you have fortune. Move this up. Oh, Lord. (laughs) You have fortune. I'm almost done. Okay? Gad. Asher means you are and can be happy. Okay? I hope you're starting to see this now. Issachar means God will come. And there's emphasis on the will. So it's more like this. God will come. Okay, last couple. Zebulun means you are God's dwelling of honor. 
okay? Your guys' last, last couple. Ephraim and Manasseh, the two half-tribes that come from Joseph. Ephraim means you are fruitful, and Manasseh means and have forgotten your troubles, okay? You are fruitful and have forgotten your troubles. And then last one, Benjamin. Benjamin, you are a son of my right hand or God's right hand. Son of my right hand. Now, here's where that's cool. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. So, Benjamin could also mean, essentially, you got your image back. Okay? Now, look at this. When your children ask their parents in time to come, what do these stones, listen, listen, mean? What do these stones mean? Then you'll say Israel crossed over the Jordan. But here's what they mean. You crossed over. You're a child of God. You have heard and you've, you've, excuse me, you've heard and you will hear. You are attached. You are for praise. God has judged you not guilty. God sees your struggle. You have fortune. You are and will be happy. God will come. You are God's dwelling of honor. You are fruitful and have forgotten your troubles and you are a son of God's right hand. Every time your children see these stones, that's what they're reminded of. Now, here's what's interesting. Do you remember when Elijah is going up against the prophets of Baal? I taught this a while back. And Elijah, it's his time. And what does he do? He takes 12, oh man, he takes 12 stones. And, I'm, I, and I taught this, but just to give you a, a memory of it. Can you imagine as Isaiah, or excuse me, Isaiah, Elijah, is taking these stones, and as they hear the click, the loud thump of these stones hit each other. Every stone, they're being reminded. Right? Because this is a generation way later, but when your children ask, what do these stones mean? Let them know that Israel crossed here on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the waters for you. Why is Elijah doing what he's doing in First, uh, first Kings uh, 19? Why is he doing this? Is it 19? Yeah, um, he's doing this because all of Israel had turned to Baal. Can you imagine? One, two, three, and he's stacking this. And I'm, I'm picturing with every rock that hits another, everyone in Israel is saying, oh, my Lord, what have we done? Can, can you picture this? What? We forgot. We don't know who we are. Did you know Baal specifically? All the gods of the Canaanites, which Baal was one of them, the Canaanite gods, all of them were, were gods of, um, of really fertile land, essentially. So Israel was a group of farmers. So can you imagine if they come into Canaan and the Canaanites introduce them to this god that promises to make their crops grow really, really well? That's Baal, Okay. 
So you see, I think I'm really easy to, to, to go to, you know, the Israelites and how they turn away from God and go to Baal and be like, those guys are idiots. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, why on earth would they do that? We do that. It's not farming for us. It's career for us. We'll, we'll lay God down for our career because we have to have money in order to survive. That's turning to, that's literally what the Israelites did when they turned to Baal. And so they go to this mountain, they've, they've hooped and hollered, and Elijah says, well, maybe your God's off relieving himself. I mean, maybe he's using the toilet, you know what I'm saying, or whatever. That's a big moment. But then when it comes time for Elijah, he throws water and water and water. Now, why is he throwing water on it? A lot of us think Elijah's throwing water on this to say this thing is soaking wet and God still moved. Maybe. Or is he reminding them of a stream that once flowed from Adam to death? And he pours the water on, and then he's stacking the, the rocks. And then he whispers, God, would you hear? And fire consumes it, and all of them turn back to God. So why are you here? You're here because God brought you out of Egypt. What Egypt? The house of slavery. Slavery to what? Slavery to what you are not. Slavery to inhumanity. Slavery to deformation. But God met you there. He brought you through the waters and he set you and I free. Free for what? Free to finally and completely be who we are, which is the people, not the person, the people of God, the kingdom of priests. The question remains, though, Matt, can you come up here? The question remains, though, God set you free. That's done. Nevertheless, will you and I get the slavery out of us? We need such a conversion to our freedom that we set up either a literal, if you need to, or a metaphorical monument so that when your children's children ask about your story, they are told what God did for you, leading you out of bondage of autonomy and your own ways and your own thinking, practically atheism. It's called practical atheism. And bringing into the reality of what it means to be human, which is like God. When your children look at your life, and they say, like when my daughter or my daughter's daughter or my daughter's daughter's daughters or sons look at my life and they say, great-granddad, why did you do that? Why did you give up everything that you had for a, for a small church in the middle of nowhere, Columbia, South Carolina? Why? Because there were some waters that the Lord led me out of. There were some waters that the Lord shut off by way of the presence that I could not, I refuse to ever live on the other side of again. That's, that's why I'm here. Why am I here? It's not to make a ton of money, obviously. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, and, it, and, and it's not because this makes me famous. It does the opposite. It destroys my reputation. You know what I mean? But it's good stuff. I'd rather be destroyed for, you know, teaching truth than for extorting money. But 
Everybody's got their thing, I guess. But you know what I'm saying? But, but when your children's children's children look at your life and say, why did you live like that? Is it going to be an Elijah moment where as you begin to stack the stories on, you realize, what have I done? Or are you going to be able to walk them to your rocks and say, this is where he set me free? And, and I've questioned a lot why the Lord, especially in the beginning, um, why so many of, of the young adults, and, and some of y'all started when you were in college and you're not in college anymore, but um, why the Lord would send us. In the beginning, I prayed for mostly like 50 and over people. You know what I'm saying? I mean, really, because it's just like, you know, why? Well, A, they, they don't have as much going on. You know what I mean? So they, they can be, and honestly, most of them don't really care if it's cool or not. And that's all I care. I was like, I just want to agree with people that don't care if I'm cool, you know? But then young people kept coming and coming and coming and coming. And this week I'm realizing, holy cow, Lord's, the Lord is sending us a generation. You, you are young enough. Everybody in the room, no matter how old you are, you're young enough in the story of the kingdom to have a moment where the Lord has cut off the waters and you walked across on dry ground. And your kids look back and say, what is that? You are also young enough in the kingdom story to have a story that when you look back, you say, what have I done? E listen, either way, God will redeem it. Either way, God will redeem it. He redeemed the Israelites that every one of them turned to Baal and he'll redeem you too. No question. But this is way beyond whether or not God will just redeem it. This is way beyond whether or not I'll make it to heaven when I die. This is about, are we going to be the generation that finally says enough with the games, enough with our differences, enough with what we've always just been told that we've never even thought about, but we're just going to believe because it's what we've always been told, right? Enough of this trying to make the church fit into society somewhere. It doesn't. The church is not an American institution. It's a kingdom institution. It'll never fit. The church will never fit into the mold of America because it's not from America. It's the kingdom. That's why we're called to be in the world, but we're not of the world because we're of the kingdom. But because we're called to be in the world, what we're called to do is be of a kingdom that invades the world by way of us being in the world. So being in the world, not of the world is not you're here, but you just act like you just keep blinders on until you get to heaven one day. No, it's you have a kingdom on the inside of you that's called to invade the earth as the waters cover the sea. But you and I are going to have to make some choices. Some of you have made those choices. Some of you have not yet. So let me ask you, does your life and my life, does our lives look like God? In other words, if God himself were living your life, would he live it like you do? Would he, you know, give to the church or, or be involved in the church or be involved with those around you, whatever. The hope of the world is what the church is. The place where God is making himself known. Would he, in, would he interact with it like you do? Would he be involved with this family of God like you are? Would he make significant changes? And what are those changes? Whatever they are, 
They are clear points of repentance, which is changing, and submission, which is doing. These are questions I've been asking myself. What if God loved you like you loved him? What if God acted toward you like you act toward him? Would you be disappointed? If so, I believe it's a clear point, at least for me, of repentance and submission. Here's my last question. Do you remember? Do you remember what God has done for you? Do you understand what God has done for you? And have we changed our life to live like we are what God did for us? Do you remember? Everybody bow your heads and close your eyes. how you used to toil? Do you remember the slave masters that used to beat you in the back like you were nothing? For us, do you remember when you used to lay awake at night wondering if you even wanted to live? Do you remember the moments when you spent your days almost unable to move because of stress of whether or not you are where you need to be right now? Do you remember when it felt like God let you down? Do you remember when the people bullied you in high school? Do you remember when you hated your job and all you wanted was something else? Do you remember when you felt like you were an awful parent or Do you remember when you had really bad parents, maybe even abusive parents? Do you remember the moments at night when you laid awake with tears rolling down your face wondering, why me? And in those moments, the God of the Exodus finding us and saying, it is I who set you free. It is I who brought you out of the waters and into marvelous light. It is I who found you in Egypt. I did. When he goes to Moses, do you know what God says? At the burning bush, God says, I see my people suffering and I know it. And the Hebrew word yada, know, is not just I know it because I've seen it. The Hebrew word yada is experiential knowledge. So when God goes to Moses in the burning bush to let his people go, he says, I've experienced their slavery with them. I was there. When a whip hit their back, it hit mine too. When they were spit at, they spit at me too. I was there. I know it because I experienced it with them. Ironically, one of the main ways Jesus was beaten was by whips as well. And as we're leading God 
in Christ, up the hill, shouting, kill him, kill him. And as you and I are beating the nails into his hands and slamming the nails into his feet and beating him to the point where he is not even recognizable anymore, He looks at us and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know. They don't know. I receive your death. I receive it. But here's the trick. If I receive your death, you have to receive my life. Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know. I wonder how many of us, how many people in the South live like that doesn't even matter. Listen, all he is asking us to do, all he's asking us to do is lay down all of our futility and just receive his life. That's that's all he's asking us to do. And we, we cannot do it because it causes us to let go of control. All he's asking us to do is give him control. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Father, forgive them. They don't know. Um, let me ask this. All your heads bowed, eyes closed. Is there um, anybody in the room that maybe you would just say, um, like, I, I, we used to say this is a salvation prayer. I'm going to say this is, a, this is a I'm going to be human again prayer. Either way, is there anybody in the room that hasn't had a relationship with Jesus, hasn't been into this God stuff, or maybe it's been just a very, very, very long time and you say like this today is the moment I need to say yes. Like this is the moment I need to surrender everything to the Lord and lay my life down. Is there anybody, just raise your hand. I'll just pray over you. You won't have to, yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome, awesome, awesome. You can put your hands down. Let me pray specifically. And as I pray, you don't have to repeat me, but you can just just kind of pray this in your own heart. Um. Lord, I pray right now that for the hands that were raised, I pray that there would be such a significant fire lit on the inside of them and all of us that there there would be some, some yokes that are destroyed, some weights that are destroyed, and in their place, life, and in their place, freedom and hope and I pray that you would begin to start such a relationship with them. And I, I don't even say start. I pray that you would unveil the relationship that you've had with them from the foundations of the earth that those that raise their hand are saying right now, I'm praying for an unveiling. I'm praying for a revelation. That's what the word revelation means. It just means unveiling. It means unveiling of things that have been hidden. Apocalypse. That's all it means. And so, God, I pray that you would give us all a revelation today of who you are. Let us peer behind the curtain and see what's actually going on. 
Let us peer behind all the religious dogma and all the religious sayings and all the religious um, shows. And I pray that you would allow us to see beyond that to see what is actually going on, which is a kingdom that is invading the earth. Whether or not we like it, you will find the remnant that has said yes to you as small as they are, as insignificant to the culture as they are, and you're going to give them the nations as your inheritance. And the reason you're going to do this is when our kids and our children's children and our children's children's children look at this, they're going to say, what happened? And we're going to be able to respond. That is when God showed the world, showed the cosmos that He alone is the living God. So, Lord, we love you in this place. Man, 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 I do love you. I pray that you would give us the guts to realize the depth that you love us too. It's in your name we all pray. Amen.